It is said that the story of Joseph's son, Jesus of Nazareth, is too big to be contained in just one telling, and so the New Testament includes four, four Gospels, the earliest of which is Mark, written around the year 70. Perhaps a decade after Mark, the Gospel of Matthew was written, and some years after that, the Gospel of Luke. Now, Mark begins with Jesus already a fully grown adult. Matthew and Luke were both familiar with Mark's account of Jesus' adulthood, and apparently they both felt an urge that our pop culture has explored a lot lately, the urge to tell an origin story. Some of the most beloved fiction of current generations, the Star Wars saga, the Marvel Comics universe, even the Chronicles of Narnia, all of these take an existing story and fill us in on the backstory. When approaching the life of Jesus Christ, that's what Matthew does, and that's what Luke does. Now, every December, we spend a lot of time with the backstory that Luke presents. It opens with the secondary, though wonderful, story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their late-in-life son, whom we call John the Baptist. And then comes the angel's annunciation to Mary, and then Mary's soaring Magnificat that we all sang together last Sunday. And then the Roman census that requires that famous journey to Bethlehem, where there's no room in the inn. But there is a manger, and swaddling clothes, and shepherds abiding in the field, and angels thronging the skies. And for good measure, there's also Simeon and Anna when the child is presented at the temple eight days later. It's no wonder we love that origin story. Well, the Gospel of Matthew has absolutely none of that. The origin story that Matthew presents is not a contradiction of Luke, it's just a totally different set of emphases. The differences often get lost in the nativity mashup that we carry around in our heads. And so we may lose the opportunity to see in this our own origin story. So listen now to the origin story that the writer of Matthew found most important. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son. And Joseph named him Jesus. 
This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. See what I mean? Only the Gospel of Matthew features Joseph's story. Matthew starts mid-miracle, explaining that Jesus' birth, and the Greek word there, Genesis, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. No word of how Mary grasps this situation. And oh, my heart has to wonder about the conversation that took place when she turned to the man she was publicly, legally bound to marry and said to him, I'm pregnant. Both of them knowing that Joseph had nothing to do with the conception. Mary was perhaps in her mid-teens. Joseph may have been some years older. We don't know. All we know is that this is not the way it was expected to go. And so the text tells us, Joseph being a righteous man and unwilling to expose Mary to public disgrace, planned to, to dismiss her quietly. Joseph is a good guy actively seeking to do the right thing. Even as the bottom falls out of his hopes, he doesn't seek to cause harm, to do damage. Maybe he loves Mary, or maybe he's just a decent sort who knows that life is hard, so why make it any harder for anyone? He'll let it go. He'll let her go. He'll let their future go. I read these words, and I think of you who find yourselves in situations you didn't want to be in. I think of you who, like Joseph, are facing the loss of a relationship you thought would endure. Or maybe it's a college acceptance letter that didn't come, a professional opportunity that didn't happen, a diagnosis that upends your plans, a sudden death that rocks your world even the incremental losses that creep in with passing years. Life can be hard. And we are good people, actively seeking to do the right thing, and I'm so glad, because I've seen folks respond to hardship by multiplying it. And I'm so grateful when that doesn't happen, because when we're not focused on making things worse, we are better able to see whatever redemptive thing God may well be doing in the midst of our loss and chaos. This is not to endorse passivity, but to underscore the opportunity for decency even in discord. And 2019 is neither the first nor the last time when that is needed. And yet, as Joseph was deciding to let it go, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Emma, I was once teaching a youth Sunday school class, and I got all misty-eyed about that phrase. I said, y'all, isn't it cool that over and over again, what heaven says to earth is, do not be afraid? Don't you love that? And one of the youth responded to me, wouldn't it be simpler if God just stopped freaking people out? <laughs> that was the last time I taught youth Sunday school. 
But the kid had a point. And this is definitely a case of God freaking people out. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, even though here comes the freakiest thing you have ever heard, and you have a key role in it. Mary's child is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus. In other words, you are to claim him as your own. And Joseph does. Joseph believes that God is keeping God's promise to do a new thing. In this case, God is coming among us to, as the angel puts it, save God's people from their sins. I read these words, and I think of you who actively believe in God's determination to do that new thing, that new and needed thing, you who see God working to save us from our sins and are willing to participate in that work. As I first started pondering this sermon, my mind came to a book entitled, My Father Said Yes. Now, I knew it was written by the son of a white pastor who'd supported the 1957 desegregation of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. But what plucked at my thoughts was simply the title. My father said yes. Well, Joseph said yes, and so I thought the book might offer some nifty angle. I opened it and I ended up consumed by the story of the Little Rock Nine those breathtakingly brave African-American teenagers who, defying earthly powers from the governor to the Ku Klux Klan, helped integrate America's education system. At unimaginable personal cost, they became instruments God used in God's work to save us from the sins of racism. I stand in awe of their faith at God's new thing. Well, as Matthew's gospel continues in the wake of today's text, it braids the story of Joseph with the story of Herod. Immediately after Joseph names the baby Jesus, Matthew pivots to tell of the Magi, ending with how they managed not to help Herod locate the infant king of the Jews. The gospel then flips back to Joseph as another angel visits his dreams saying, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Again, Joseph obeys. And so the Holy Family live as refugees until it is safe to return home. Furious at being duped by the Magi, Herod orders the slaughter of the children of Bethlehem. And then the story turns again to Joseph. After Herod dies, another angel in another dream says, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. And Joseph again obeys. And being warned in one last dream to avoid Judea, he steers his little family to the district of Galilee settling in a town called Nazareth, all so that what had been promised by the prophets might be fulfilled. 
And after accomplishing all of that, after thus performing the classic functions of protector and provider, Joseph just disappears from the story. I read these words, and I think of all of you men and boys. This is, I can only imagine, a tough time to be a guy. I think so often of my three brothers, two sons and one husband. I think of the toxic models the world foists upon us all, and I give thanks for the alternatives that my dear ones have found or forged. I think of Joseph's acknowledged vulnerability and fear his decency and compassion, his humble willingness to serve without fanfare, his tenacious dedication to his family, his dynamic, obedient faith. That, friends, is the kind of man God entrusts with God's only begotten son. While reading that book I mentioned, my father said yes, I turned one page and suddenly found myself reading about my own father, literally. I knew that Daddy's postdoctoral work had included traveling to Little Rock as a Harvard researcher, but I'd never paid attention to the details. This book repeatedly mentions the work of two young sociologists, one of them, Ernest Campbell, my dad. And suddenly, Matthew's gospel was telling me one more thing. God has called plenty of prophets and judges and rulers, but Joseph was called to be a father, Jesus' dad. He was called to name and claim and love Jesus, to play that tender role in Jesus' origin story. In each Sunday's worship during Advent season, we've encountered key individuals that we've been calling the characters of Advent. Here on the cusp of Christmas, I want to suggest that we too are characters of Advent. We are Advent people. We are eagerly anticipating the coming of the one who changes everything, including us. So these texts are our origin stories too. Like John the Baptist, like the shepherds and the prophets, like Mary and like Joseph. We are ordinary people, each striving to respond faithfully to God's call. Like those other characters of Advent, we have our parts to play in this ongoing story. We are to live lives that witness to the God who is doing the new thing, who instills hope, inspires awe, overturns injustice, and demands compassion. We are to follow the God who saves us from our sins, and we are to give thanks to the God who adopts us as God's own children naming and claiming and loving us so much as to come among us as Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. <laughs>